The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. It is well. That's it. Good night, everybody. Let's, let's pray before we get into our word. Father, thank you for giving us this day, for coming here. And Lord, we bless your name. We honor your name. It is the name that's above all names. We come to you today to learn more about you and about your word and how to have a Christian worldview, Father, in this world. So we ask your blessing on our time of Bible study. and Speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we had an introduction, and we talked about the reasons, some of the reasons for the Ten Commandments. Um, You know, we talked about to reveal the holiness of God, to reveal the sinfulness of man. We talked about the need for grace. And we also touched based on that we live in a generation that has lost its fixed standards. We have gotten rid of the Ten Commandments from the state house, the courthouse, the schoolhouse. We have morality that's by majority, and, you know, the result is chaos in our society. And, folks, I'm really also getting tired of hearing the left, the right, you know, and the, the, the religious left, and there's also the religious right. It's a matter of right and wrong. And, you know, we Christians complain that the Ten Commandments have been not posted in public places or they're being taken down. But the question is, how many of us really know them? We complain, we say we're Christian, but yeah, we can't even recite the Ten Commandments. Many of our young people have no clue about the Ten Commandments. They don't know the Word of God, they don't know the Word of Truth. Well, how many parents actually sit down with their parents and teach them the Word of God? Teach them the Word of Truth. You know, Francis Xavier was a Catholic leader and he said this, Give me your children until they're seven and then anyone can have them afterwards. Until they're seven. And we need to begin early teaching our kids the words of God. In Isaiah 28, um, verses 9 and 10, it says, Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make understanding the message? Those just weaned from milk, those drawn from the breast. For precert must be upon precert, upon precert, line upon line, line upon line, here little and there little. And you know, I was going through Facebook and I saw a mother, a young mother, teaching her kid the word of God. And tell you, I had a little tearjerker moment there, you know. She was mispronouncing words, but she was teaching them. And the reason for that, she's doing the right thing. Deuteronomy 6, in chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, And these words which I command to you today shall be in your heart. Not only in your heart, but you shall teach them diligently to your children and should talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So, folks, teaching the Word of God is not of the schools. So we complain the schools remove the Ten Commandments. Guess what? It's supposed to happen. It's not the responsibility of the government to teach your kids the Word of God. It's not the responsibility necessarily of the church. The church can help. The church can guide. But it's the parents' responsibility to teach the Word of God. Professors are the mother and father. Students are the children. That's God's priority plan, especially for the dads. And do you know what our homes really need to see? I think my opinion is missing. It's sincere love. And not necessarily the love between husband and wife. You know, that should be a given. But they need to see in their parents a burning, passionate love when it comes to the things of God. Are they seeing that in your house? And the reason I say that because... (laughs) And when I was a kid, and I'm seeing it now in my Stella, kids can spot a phony, can't they? They can, they can spot a phony a mile away. And you know, there's a great story about a phony, and it's a true story. There was a Jewish boy, he and his father lived in Germany, and they were practicing their Jewish faith. And then from Germany, they moved to England. And when they moved to England, their father joined the Lutheran church. And the young boy was kind of confused. He said, Father, why are we joining a Lutheran church? We're Jewish. We're practicing the Jewish faith as we did in Germany. 
Well, son, we live in a different place now, and there's lots of Lutherans around, and it will be good for business if we join a Lutheran church. That boy lost all, all need for religion. He lost all interest. Do you know whose name that boy was? Karl Marx. That's correct. He wrote the Communist Manifesto. He spotted a phony. And you're to love God with sincere love. And these Ten Commandments are the most, most amazing set of laws. You can't write Eleventh Commandment to it. You can't add nothing. They're so concise, they're comprehensive, these Ten Commandments. And some people say that they're old, we're, 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 you know, they're out of date, gone out of style, and we left them behind. And friends, we have not left them behind. We never even really caught up with them. And the first command, the, the commandments you also can see when we go through our study, but you'll see they're broken in two sections. The first four and the last six. The first four is our relationship with God. Last six have to do with the relationship with others, with other people and so forth. And that's why Jesus really summed up the Ten Commandments in two things. He said you should love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, that's Ten Commandments summarized. So if you're loving the Lord with all your heart and mind, you will not have other gods before him. So in today we're talking about the first commandment. And also some people say that first commandment and second commandment go together. Uh, graven images. Uh, but that's not true because the first commandment forbids false gods. Second commandment is talking about worshiping false gods. So we open up to Exodus uh, chapter 20. And we're going to look at the first three, voice, three verses and it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Folks, I said it before, the most glorious facts, fact in the universe that God exists. And the most glorious fact is that you can know the God of the universe, the God that created the whole thing. That's the most glorious thing. But the saddest thing is there's a lot of people who do not know God personally because they don't know God personally. Nothing works out. It might seem like it's working out, and we'll talk about it. You might seem successful, but it's not. And I want to remind you what we talked about last time a little bit in Acts 17, 20. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's the cause for your existence. In him we live. That is, God is the element in which you're supposed to operate to function properly. If you take a fish, right? You take a fish out of ocean and you put it on a tree. What are you going to get? Unhappy fish. You take a bird out of the sky, you put it in the water or the ocean, what are you going to get? Unhappy bird. Why? They're out of their element. They can't function properly. And you'll be like a round peg trying to be put in a square hole. It doesn't work. And it's in Him we move, we live, and have our being. And I want to tell you, things are not supposed to work out until you know the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have any other gods before me. Why is God making this statement? Is it feels insecure? Is it because He doesn't like rivalry, competition? Is it because He thinks their other gods might look, make Him look bad? Well, why is He making this statement? See, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verses 14 15, he says this, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who you're all around. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You see, there's some things that are sin for us, they're not sin for God. Right? Anger. He has righteous anger. Jealousy. It's a sin for us. It's not a sin for God. Parents, I don't think one of the things that we teach our children, you know, when they're young is the first, you know, the thing coming out in the toddler. We don't teach them the Ten Commandments. What is the first thing we teach our little kids? How to share, right? Share their clothes, their toys. We constantly remind them, share their food and things like that. But as important as it is to learn how to share, it's important to realize there are some things they're made not to be shared. Bite-sized candy bar. That's not meant to be shared. Katrina. You know, give me half a bite. Unicycle. 
right? That's not meant to be shared. An intimate relationship of love between husband and wife, that's not meant to be shared. The things were never intended to be shared with someone else. In order to be used properly, they have to be kept exclusive. And some things were never meant to be shared. It's not surprising to God of the universe saying, I'm not going to share or refuse to share. Some things he will not share, especially when it comes his glory, his authority. Look at verse 42 in Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. I am the Lord. I'm not going to share with nobody else. So he's given us this command, you shall not have any other gods before me. This is the fundamental commandment, the one that comes before all others and lays the foundation for the rest. Before we learn anything else about God's demands for us, we need to know who he is and who we are in relationship to him. Now, we need to get this straight. When he says, I am the one and only and since I am the one and only, I refuse to share my worship with anyone or anything or anyone else. God will not share the stage with any other performers. He refuses any colleagues. He will not acknowledge any genuine rivals that he has. God does not simply lay the claim like one part of your life and worship. He demands everything. Why is he so demanding? Well, Let's look at what I'm calling the declaration of the assertion of the commandment. So in order for us to understand the first commandment, it helps us to know the context in which it was given. Israel just came out of Egypt, and they lived there for a lot of years. And Egyptians are polytheistic. They, they, they believe in many gods. Simply, they worship many gods, and they were unsurpassed. So it's not atheism that's the questioning here. It's polytheism. Atheism is never a question in the Bible, but in the Bible, it's a, it's a battle of other gods. But you see, the Bible never battles atheism because if you read the Bible, it just says, I am the Lord God. That, that's it. In the beginning, God. <laughs> right? That's how Genesis 1-1 starts. That's how he's starting here. I am God. And over long centuries in their captivity, the Israelites gradually given into the temptation to worship strange gods. And God told them in Ezekiel uh, chapter 20, verses 7 through 8, says, Then I said to them, Each of you throw away abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourself with idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations that were before my eyes, nor did they forsake idols of Egypt, then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So like the Egyptians, Israelites started worshiping many gods. And as for gods, he's, he's always been a monotheist. He only believed in one God. So the first commandment, he took the stand against gods of Egypt, against every other false deity or every false god in the present, future, or, and in the past. He said, you shall have no other gods. I am to be your only god. You see, none of the other nations around prohibited worshiping multiple gods. They just assumed each nation will worship their own gods, but not the God of Israel, our God. That was completely intolerant. He refused it. So what <laughs> gives him the right to make this kind of demand? Folks, he is God. He is God. If you look at Exodus, the first three, three verses again, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What the commandment is based on is on what he was and what he did. God saved his people for his glory, and he was saying to them, I am the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and I have the right to rule over you. More than this, it's a covenant promise that he made before. It's a promise. I redeemed you. I released you from the bondage of the Pharaoh. You know, they didn't even realize the ten plagues 
that God sent before they left Egypt, he defeated every single Egyptian god there is. None of the Egyptian gods could help the people or the Egyptians, right? So he's showing them, I am God. I am the most powerful God. And because of, of the basis on what he has died, done, he's not going to share his glory with, with anyone. And another thing that kind of blows my mind, if you really think about it for too long, but don't think about it too long because we don't have that kind of help in this church to help you, but God always existed. Can, 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 that's, that's one of the things is just kind of in your head. You're like, yeah, but think about it. Everything, something comes from something, right? My parents had a baby. Fortunately, they had me. Um, you, you know, trees grow. You plant seeds. They come from seeds and, and things like that. But God was always there. Where did God come from? He was always there. He's self-existent. He's not relying on anything. It, it just boggles my mind, honestly, to think about it. I exist because I exist. That's his answer. And God is the only God, right? So why is he then talking about these other gods? Why is he, if they had any real existence, if he knows he's the only God, why is he talking about them? Bible insists that there is only one God and all other deities are fraud. And Isaiah 45, 21 says, Tell him, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together who declared this from ancient time. Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and the Savior. There is none besides me. Why is he so redundant throughout all the scripture? Think about it, that I am the only God. And in Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, therefore, in Corinthians 8, 4, says, therefore, concerning the eating of these things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And there is no other God but one. If this is true, again, what's the point of telling about the other gods? They're, on, they're not really other gods. But you see, the answer is these false gods that we have, they hold a kind of a spiritual power over their worshipers. People worship powerful forces within, within the creation that God created. If they were gods, deities, they're not gods. They only called gods. They're, they're very real powers, so you understand that, but they're able to enslave a person totally. Paul reminds the Galatians in chapter 4, 8, it says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Another translation has said, slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You were slaves to those things until you came into a realization of God. And 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For themselves declare concerning us the, uh, what matter the entry had, had to you, and how you turned, from, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And the reason the false gods, they have this enslaving power because behind the idol, there's demonic forces. There's demonic forces behind the idols. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, what I'm saying then, that an idol is, is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. So it's all nothing. Idol, you know, sacrifices to idol, they're nothing. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Idol is nothing, but what stands behind it? What stands behind it? It's demonic powers that give it an illusion that they're gods. And spiritual power, and they start working in the minds of the hearts of the Egyptians and also the Israel. So that's what happened to them. And you know, before the ten plagues came in, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, and again, I'm paraphrasing this my way, said, hey, let my people go. He said, why will I let you go? Well, God said so. What God? You know, and then remember he threw the staff on the floor and it turned to a snake? What did his little magicians do? 
Well, our gods can do the same thing. They threw it, and then they had two snakes. But Moses' snake ate the other two snakes, right? So it shows that God is the ultimate, the true God. But there are false gods. They're not true gods, but they're false gods. And this is the way it's always been. And this is why God took the trouble to defeat all those gods one by one to show his power. Now, that's kind of a declaration, I am God. Now, he also has a discrimination in here. He's, he's comes from, you know, this commandment is coming from God, our Lord and Savior. But what about the commandment itself? If we look at the last phrase, it says, you shall have no gods before me. What does that mean? Is that permissible then, worship other deities as long as we put God first? Before me. What he's trying to say in these words before me, before my face. Sometimes they are used in spatial tense. Before me, that is in front of me, alongside me, right? We sang a song today, I know who's behind me, I know who's in front of me and so forth. Besides me, in my place, instead of me, over against me. When I was in high school... And I don't know if, you know, I asked some kids up there what's cool these days. But when I was in high school, you know, when somebody invaded your space or they got too close to you, you say, why you open my grill, man? Why you open my grill? You know, you kind of, you give, you give space. And taken literally, this would be forbidding people from bringing these foreign gods into a place where God is worshipped. But what we need to understand, though, it doesn't mean like it's a formal location. God is everywhere. So really, he forbids us from worshiping fall gods anywhere. At any time we serve any other god, we're doing it in the presence of God. You shall have no other gods over against me, before me, anywhere, not in my space. And this is all his space. The point is, when it comes to worshiping God, it's all or nothing. And this is the way it's always been. In the New Testament, the Old Testament... It was this way in Mount Sinai where God gave these first commandments. That's what he told them. But then he renewed with Joshua when Joshua went. And if you look at it, Joshua verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whenever the gods which your father serves that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This was the way it was on Mount Carmel when he was, uh, Elijah was battling the, the, the god Baal, Baal, whatever you want to call him. If you look at 1 Kings in chapter 18, verse 21, it says, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is your God... Follow him. If by all, follow him. But the people didn't answer anything. And Jesus reiterated this point in Matthew 6, 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. God's people have always been faced with a choice. Religion of pluralism. It's, it, it's not a, <laughs> some recent development that we have. There, there's always been plenty of other gods, uh, you know, trying to grab our attention. When we co God commands us to reject these false gods, he's not always, not in this commandment, he's not just telling us to reject them, but he's commanding us to choose him as the true God. So the commandment tells us whom to worship and as well who not to worship. It's positive as well as negative. And in Deuteronomy 6, uh, chapter 6, and verse 4 and uh, 5, Israelites repeated this on a daily basis. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Didn't that sound like what Jesus was saying? But the key word here is love. Love is the right word because the first commandment solidifies the covenant relationship between God and his people. Notice the commandment God speaks to us here is singular. It's not just through all Israel in general. It says, God says, you, that's you, each one of us, shall have no other gods before me. 
personal. Me. We do not worship a God, but the God, right? Kind of like the Ohio State. But he wants this exclusive love relationship with each of his people. Not just grace, fellowship, general. With each one of you. So we must be faithful to one true God. Now what happens when we break that? There's a story about a man violating this commandment. Someone who I admired very much when I first started to study the Bible. The story, however, ended with the tragic downfall of a king. He was one of the greatest kings in the ancient world. He was the most powerful, most powerful king any nation has seen. He was, uh, had chariots by the thousand. He crushed his enemies. He's expanded his kingdom like it was nothing from, from the mountains to the sea. Uh, wealthiest king, most wealthiest person probably ever lived. His palace was filled with gold, but not silver. You know why? Because silver was too common. It's gold. Anybody know who this is? Solomon. Solomon. But Solomon wanted, uh, you know, to serve God originally. We, the most remarkable thing about Solomon is that he possessed true spiritual wisdom. He did. You know, in the early days of his reign, God appeared to him and said, you know, one time probably in the Bible where God was like a genie, right? What do you want? What do you want? It was the opportunity of a lifetime. He could ask for anything he wanted. So his answer revealed what God he wanted to serve. If it was the God of riches, he would ask for gold. If it was ask of power, he would ask that his enemies be crushed and give him armies and all those kind of things. If it was serve pleasure, he would probably ask for a beautiful woman. I don't know whatever his pleasure was, but we'll discuss that in the hearing. But Solomon wanted to serve one and only true God, and he asked for wisdom to rule over his people in righteousness. And God gave him this request. The only one in history past and never in the future will be there a man like Solomon. And I used to play, can, can, can be somebody number two. Solomon was recognized as the wisest man in the ancient world. People came from all over to test his knowledge, talk to him. Bible tells he's judged between right and wrong, served as counselor to other kings and queens. His wisdom uh, did many things for God. He was generous. He built a temple in honor of God. Uh, he was a man of prayer. There's a magnificent prayer where he came and uh, prayed for the, uh, on the, the temple when it was done in 2 Chronicles in chapter 6. And God answered Solomon's prayer, descended on his temple in power and glory and so forth. He had everything that was possibly want, including an opportunity to do great things for God. He had the opportunity to do great things, but only if he kept the first commandment. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. This is God speaking. He says, Now if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of the heart and uprightness, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from the following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I set before you, which are what? But go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated my name, I will cast out out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb, a byword among all people. It's very simple. All Solomon had to do was give God glory, just like he's been doing. And particularly he had to obey the first commandments by refusing to serve any other gods. But... What does the scripture tell us what happened to him? First Kings 11.5 says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of Ammonites. And this is how God responded. In First Kings 11.9, verses 9 through 11 says, So the Lord became angry with Solomon because he, his heart turned from the Lord God of Israel, who appeared to him twice, and he had commanded him concerning this thing. What thing? that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep the, what God Lord had commanded him. 
Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant, my statutes, the way I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. King Solomon was condemned, especially for violating the first commandment. And here's the danger that we need to realize. And most people of that time and probably most Christians are surprised by what happened to Solomon. How can, how can you know, the real kingdom, kingdom probably was in shock too. They, they, they flourished. This king was awesome and all that kind of stuff. How can this happen? But if you look at Solomon's life carefully, you will see that his heart started to turn away from God long before he ever bowed down to sticks and stones and any idols. But he gradually drifted away until he finally, finally bowed down to actual wood and brick gods. Uh, He did not ask God for gold, but he started worshiping the God of wealth. It took him, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 638, in the 11th year, the mouth of bull which is eight months, the house was finished, all the details according to its plans, so he was seven years building it. So he spent seven years building the temple, beautiful temple for God. But if you go to 1 Kings in chapter 7, verse 1, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so if he finished all his house. Can you imagine what his house looked like? Once the king done something for God... He decided it was time to do something for himself, so he took twice as long as doing it, make sure it's looking, you know. That's why it's, the Bible always, it's not, money is not a sin, but there's dangers that come with money, and when we think we can handle it, that's why I tell people, you know, if I win a million dollars, this is what I'm going to do. No, my friend, you're going to do the same thing with it that you're doing with $20 in your pocket. Money has this thing over people, and then we see that he started worshiping power. Again, not something he asked for originally, right? But he started serving the God of military. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, it says, But, but he shall not multiply him for his horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way. Simple. If you go to Kings, 1 Kings 10, 26, 29, it says, And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen from whom he stationed in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Woo! Common as stones. And he made cedar trees in abundant sycamores, which are in the lowland. Also, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kevach, and the king's merchants bought them at Kevach in the current price. He didn't even care what they cost. The, now the chariot was imported from Egypt, cost 600 shekels of silver, and horse 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all kings of Hittites and the kings of Syria. Basically, you take, take Bill Gates, whatever, Steve Jobs, Apple, they look like nothing compared to this. He also made a mistake when it came to women. Deuteronomy 17 17 says, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself unless his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So, in the beginning, he didn't ask for pleasure. He didn't ask for gold, silver, chariots, anything like that. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, for the first three verses, it says, But the king Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of the Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations from whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. That's why he told them not to marry. They're going to do this. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had, you ready for this? 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Folks, it's hard enough for me to keep God number one with one wife, you know? 700? I don't know how he did it. Now, some of these wives were acquired to satisfy political ambitions, but others were sexual addiction. Why do you need so many? For what? There were not even 700 countries at that time. In the New Testament, Paul wrote the same thing. He wanted pleasure. 
And Paul wrote the same thing in 2 Timothy 3, 4. It says, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God. All while Solomon was following other gods until he finally, finally, finally suffered the ultimate degradation. He bowed down, like I said, to the blocks of wood and stone. And God punished Solomon. But the real tragedy here, folks, is not the punishment. That, that's the result. The real tragedy here is, is the sin, the violation of the first commandment. And Solomon discovered in his own dismay how empty his life was. For those who follow other gods, for him and we move, for him we live, right? Later, he looked back at it all and said, I thought my heart, look, look in Ecclesiastes 2, 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this was also vanity. Then he described his royal projects, if you go down to verses uh, 4 through 8, I made, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can see here that says, I made the my works great. I built my house, myself houses, planted myself vineyards, water pools. I acquired male and female servants. I had servants born in my house. I've had greater possessions, all the herds. I had, I had silver and gold, special treasures of the king that nobody has. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments, all kind. He had it all. This was Solomon's grand experiment in pursuit of other gods. And then he also said in Ecclesiastes 2.10, he said, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from, from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. No mention of thanking God for giving him strength, for giving him wisdom to do these things, to acquire. I, 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 I result. I deserve this. What's the result? Was he satisfied? Did he get what he wanted? Was it worth it? In Calais 2.11, verse down, he says, Then I looked at all the works that my hands have done, and all the labor in which I have toiled, and indeed it all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Therefore I hated life, in verse 17, he says, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. So he did all these things, but not with God in the first place. This is what happens to anyone that breaks the first commandment. You're out of your element. You can't function properly. You may not know it. You might look like you're successful and so forth. But when we break the first commandment, we discover that other gods cannot satisfy us. They cannot save. Can your money save you when you're laying sick at a bed and the doctor says you got three hours left or a day left? How's your money going to save you? Two tests, which I call the demand of the commandment, that we can do ourselves. Many people assume that idolatry or adultery, whatever you want to call it, is basically replacing God for anything else in your life. It is a thing of a past. We don't worship wood or stone gods. We don't bow down to them, right? Not a lot of people bow down to a Buddha, little Buddha or something like that. But the truth is, the spirit of Solomon, that spirit of following false gods, is alive and well. We might not worship those gods, but we may worship the almighty dollar, right? Instead of almighty God. In many cases, to serve exactly the same gods as Solomon, what, what money, sex, power? In 1 John 2.16, it says, For all in this world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, not of the Father, but of this world. So the tests we need to do in our life is, what is the thing we love most? I call it the love test. What each one honors before all else, all the things he admires and loves, this is for him as the God. It could be a false God. It can be sports, recreation. It could be a, a hobby. It could be interest. A, 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 any of those things. You know, one pastor told me, he said, if you want to really know what you love is check your calendar and check your checkbook. See where you're spending most of your time. <laughs> See where you're spending most of your money. But it goes more than that. You know, uh, do we have an appetite for finer things in life and we're just spending all our time chasing those things? It could be personal health and fitness, right? It could actually be ministry in the church. Some make a God of family. 
Ooh, right? Family comes first is what we say. Folks, you ought to love your family. You ought to adore your family, sacrifice for your family, but never, never, never make God of your family. That's the worst thing you can do for your family. The absolute worst thing you could do would be put your family first because whatever is first is God. And I'll let you in on a secret. My wife knows she's not number one in my life. I know I'm not number one in her life. And I'm glad. Not because she loves me, you know, she loves me with the love that I wouldn't be able to be loved if I was number one. And being number two, I'm loved more than I could ever be by being number one. Your children, you will love them more if you put them in second place. You know, we talk about the Ten Commandments, how they are out of date and so forth, but I always tell you Jesus ups the ante in the New Testament of the, New, of the, Testament, of the Old Testament. Look at Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's kind of off-putting, right? Like, what? But go down to Luke 14, 26. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife, children, and brothers and sisters, and yes, you don't even hate your own life, you cannot be my disciples. Is God telling us to hate our families, not love our families? No, but this is what he demands from us. Let's see if I can explain it correctly. The word hate here does not mean you don't love them or love them any old any less than you do today. I love my wife very much, right? But let's say all that love is, if it bundles up, it comes into a fist. Now, my love for God should be as big as this speaker here. Now, if you compare the two loves, doesn't it look like I hate my wife? That's what he's saying. Love. But then take that love that you have for your family, multiply it by a billion, that's the love you should have for God. It's crazy, isn't it? We think like, oh, the man's, well, this is New Testament. Jesus is demanding this. You can't be his disciple. He should be number one. That's what our Lord said. God comes first. You put him first. Doesn't mean that we love our loved ones or our family less. And certainly we're not, you know, allowed, we are allowed to enjoy the good things in life, but we must never allow them to become number one in our life. And then the trust test. What do you trust more? Where do you go in time of trouble? You know, I was reading and Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. We are called to trust in God alone for salvation. But if we trust in someone or something else, we are serving that other God. So what do we trust? You know, some people trust their addictions to get them through. They have a rough day and so forth. They go to the bottle or they go to the alcohol or they... Uh, I don't know, drugs. Um, there's different things. Other people trust things that are good in themselves. You know, people trust in their jobs, their insurance policies, pension plans, social security, trust in families, their social, social position. People trust in science and medicine. But God can use all those things in care and provide for us. But we have to place our trust and all the confidence in Him first. And the truth is, we are tempted tempted to love and trust many things other than God. We are. The root of all sin is pride, right? You can become your own God. Right? Makes God of self. And there are many examples of this kind in reasoning in the Bible. Look what Job said in verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 24. It said, if I had gold, my hope, or as said to find gold, you are my confidence. Then later in verse 28 says, this would also be iniquity deserving of judgment, for I have denied God who is above. Apostle Paul makes it plain, you know, the Bible does talk about food. In Philippians 3.19, he says, whose God is their belly. Food can make our God. Some make God of our business. We rely on our business. My business provides for me. Kind of like Solomon. We forget that God gives us strength for our business, gives us wisdom to work and blesses us. In Habakkuk 1.16, it says this, Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by, by them their share is assumption, their food is plentiful. 
And I know it's kind of confusing, but if you look at the New Living Translation, it kind of paraphrases it. They started worshiping their nets. They said, these nets are gods who've made us rich. And thinking, instead of thinking, God, is, thank you for the fish. Thank you for the catch. Whatever it's money, power, your own belly, the world is full of God substitutes or God, God additives. Add this. But it's never God and something else. It's just God. So the only answer is to fall passionately and deeply in love with God, especially by trusting His Son, Jesus Christ. And the only thing that can tear away our hearts from all these other affections and truth for love God is Jesus Christ. The only thing that can replace all other things is the total faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So many options. You know, today even Christians say it doesn't really matter which religion you choose as long as it's faith, right? It's fine to follow Christ. We're, we're good with that, but only if you recognize he's not the only God. You know, I hear a lot in church that there's more people saying Jesus is a Savior, but not the Savior. My favorite one I hear, oh, we're all Christians. You know, it reminds me of a story of Alexander the Great. They brought a thief in front of him. And they were reading the charges. And Alexander the Great said, what is your name, son? He said, Alexander. He said, take this man away, change his name, then bring him back. How many of us would God tell us, oh, I'm a Christian. Change your name, then bring him back. Folks, God is holy. That's one of the things that we need to recognize and keep in top of our heads. He is not a little buddy to mess around with. And the prolistic approach to religious or direct attack on the first commandment is we're to worship God alone. God is intolerant today as he was in the Old Testament. You can see the demands of Jesus, if you really think about it, is even higher. And Jesus claims exclusive rights to our worship. And we need to understand the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Gospel of John, Jesus took that, the great I am, right? Remember that great I am, Moses? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And Revelation says, I am the Alpha and Omega. He is the only incarnate of God's Son. He alone kept the whole law. And therefore, we must bow the knee to him. So, if you look at that commandment, you brought him out of Egypt and so forth. Let me fair praise it for today's world. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of your bondage to sin, out of slavery to Satan. You shall have no other gods before me. It's that simple. That's why he's your God. That's why he's your God. And friend, if the Lord is your God... Or is he simply a Lord or not the God? And again, folks, the greatest fact in the history of the world, God exists, and you get to know him personally. And you can do that. You can do that. You see, have you discovered him personally? You know, we're all from the Psalm 23 is a very uh, a famous psalm, and the first word says, The Lord is my shepherd, I, not, I shall not want. It says, The Lord is my shepherd doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd, not even the Lord is a good shepherd. So until you can say, I am his and he is mine, you can't say, I shall not want. For in him we live, move, and have our being. How do, you, how do you find this God? Well, Jeremiah 29, 13, even the Old Testament said, you will seek me and you find me when you search me with all your heart. Are we searching God with all our heart every day? Romans 10, 17, Paul says, so their faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the only revelation you're going to get about God is comes from his word. You want to find God? Come to him with a sincere heart. Read the scriptures. Jesus said to, in John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except me. No one comes to the Father. Remember we talked about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and this grace. 
Who fills that grace? I was watching a documentary about the, trans, uh, the continental uh, railway that, that was built. And it was interesting that when they came together to finalize the project, the governors, I think it was Utah or whatever, they had special spikes, one of them golden spike, and they connected the railway, they had the ceremony, and then the governor took the golden spike, the final spike, and put it through the, through the rails, and they said, it is finished, it is nice, now we connected east and west. Doesn't that remind you of something? That is what Christ did for you, except there was no golden spike. There was gold, there was rusted metal. He took the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and connected us all. So the only way you're going to get to God is through Jesus. Now, you can't avoid Jesus. You're going to leave this place today. You're going to either... Either you're going to step over the blood or you're going to go through the blood, but you can't avoid it. Have you accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior? You may say yes, but what does that mean? Have you committed your entire life to him? And folks, one of the things that was sent to, told, told me by my father said, he who abandons himself to God will never be abandoned to God, by God. That's a, such a true statement. Are we surrendering all our things? Or are we putting other things in front of God? Now, this is what my dad taught me, and I'm not putting it on anybody else. But he said, your priority in life, God, family, church, work. God is the first thing. God is the first thing should be in your life. Then you're able to love your family better. You're able to be, perform at work better. You're not doing it by your means or your strength. And if you haven't accepted him, I would encourage you that you come to him. And folks, you won't be perfect. Don't think you're going to come to God and all of a sudden you're going to get a wings and a halo. You're not. You won't be perfect. You'll have to work at it, and God will help you. But you will be set on the greatest adventure of your life. Amen? Just close in prayer. Father... Thank you so much for your wonderful words that we should keep you number one in our lives and the great examples you showed us in the Bible, what happens when we don't. And the reason sometimes we struggle in our lives and we don't understand it, we feel like a fish in, a, fish in, a, in the tree or a bird in water is because we lost sight of you. Help us keep you number one in our life. And as we leave this place today, I ask the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen.